I wanted to start by a review from last year. I know probably nobody remembers what, uh, what the talk was last year, but, but we did talk how um, salvation is not a financial transaction. It's not like you ran up the credit card very high and you couldn't pay, so somebody else paid in your place. That salvation was much more comprehensive, that it was much bigger. Um, that, in fact, the debt that was against us that we wrote by our own hands, um, and which Christ nailed to the cross, was us putting ourselves in debt to death, right? Which, in the liturgy, we say, um, and as a ransom on our behalf, he offered himself up to death, which reigned over us, by which we were bound and sold. So we sold ourselves to death, and we had this debt note, you know, like if you took out a mortgage, again, you write, there is a piece of paper that you sign and say, we owe X number of dollars, and you know, the bank can take that to the court and say, see, they signed. So death and the devil was doing this, like, nope, I got them, they're mine. They sold themselves to me. And this is the note of debt that Christ nails to the cross. In Colossians, he says, You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he made you alive with him by forgiving us all our trespasses and by wiping away the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross, having exposed the principalities and powers, the power of death. And St. Paul actually emphasizes this again in another place where he says that God was actually not keeping track. He's not counting sins against us. So this is in 2 Corinthians. It's kind of weird because I think a lot of, uh, let's say, non-Orthodox theology wants to rely on St. Paul to say, you know, um, this was a punitive transaction. You did X, your judgment was Y. Christ took, came and took the judgment. Again, this idea of like wiping, you know, this accounting of death. But actually St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, but all things are of God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What I mean is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not imputing sins. And what does imputing mean? It actually taken into account, consider, evaluate, or count. So St. Paul is saying that God was not counting the sins, that the, the, the act of Christ being crucified redeems us uh, with God. Uh, and there's another translation that says, actually more explicitly, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, so if salvation is not coming through this credit card transaction, cancellation of credit card debt of sin, then what is it? Well, in order to really you know, figure out how the church wants to eliminate this idea to us this week, we have to look at the way that um, the readings that the church set up throughout the week. And especially the prophecies, actually. The prophecies are kind of tricky because sometimes, you know, there's a lot of them and it's not always clear, like, what's happening. But there are these, like, solid themes that we can anchor on. And every weekday morning has one major big reading from the Old Testament. On Monday, the big main reading of the prophecies is the creation and fall of humanity and the promise of redemption that came along. On Tuesday, today... Um, kind of a reflection on the absolute corruption of humanity after the fall to the point where God has to bring the flood to start things over. Wednesday, there's the promise made to Abraham. So through his seed, salvation would come to the world. Thursday, uh, the big prophecy is the sacrifice of Isaac as a prototype of Christ. And Friday, it's, you know, recollection of the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea, right? Um, which is, again, how God affects redemption, again, from being under the bondage, right, of slavery 
so for, for the Israelites, it was bondage of slavery. Um, in Egypt, for us, it's the bondage, this bondage to death that, again, we created with our own, you know, that we wrote this that, that note against ourselves. So today, Tuesday, it was the story of the flood. What is the story of the flood? Well, the story of the flood is that it's a story of a new creation. Um, sometimes it's not sufficient to repair what's there. Sometimes you do have to tear it down and start again. And I think the book of Genesis, you know, when we read the beginning of the story of the flood, actually illustrates how bad the situation was. Now, the Lord God saw that the wicked actions of humans multiplied upon the earth, and everyone was focused in his heart on evil, evil things all their days. And God reflected that he made humankind upon the earth and considered. And God said, I will discard humanity, whom I made from the face of the earth, from human to animal, and from creeping things to winged birds of the heavens, because I am angry that I made them. Um, and in the sixth hour of uh, the book of Isaiah, today also, um, the church also puts this reading for us, where Isaiah tries to characterize basically the, the, the condition of fallen humanity. And he says, from the feet all the way to the head, there is no soundness on them. In them, only wounds and bruises and festering sores. Situation is really bad. Sometimes repair is not possible. Sometimes you do have to start over. I mean, we amputate, doctors amputate people's legs. Sometimes there's just no repairing the leg. You have to amputate. Um, I also remember we used to live in the Bay Area and um, there's a big bridge between San Francisco and Oakland in the Bay Area. And that, Abuna, you will appreciate this, of course. Um, so there was this big, huge bridge, but it was not seismically safe. And you know, the state considered whether to try to repair the existing bridge that was there and the conclusion was, nope, there is no hope. We have to tear it down and we just have to build another one, right? So sometimes you have to tear down and start anew. And so we see in the story of salvation, the aim of God really is the renewal of the whole of creation, beginning with the crowning jewel of creation, which is humanity. Um, and God says this in the book of Revelation. Uh, the one who sits on the throne said to me, behold, I make all things new, all things. But it starts with man. Um, and this creation, this new creation, is affected, put into effect through the cross of Christ. In Galatians, St. Paul says, As for me, I shall find glory in nothing except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Christ Jesus, circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing, only a new creation. Okay? Only a new creation matters in Christ. Therefore, anyone who binds themselves to Christ in the way of the cross, in the great humility in the cross, can become a new creation. So St. Paul again says, we're going to be referencing St. Paul a lot. He wrote a lot on this. Um, therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Again, echoing the same thing that Christ says in, in Revelation. We have to be recreated in the image of Christ. We have to be reborn. And this is what Christ tells Nicodemus. Jesus answered to him, Amen, Amen, I tell you, unless one is born in you, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How then are we born again as a new creation? It's through a radical change in the noose. The noose is the intellectual faculty of humans employed in practical judgment, capable of being good or evil, and of being regenerated. It is the mind, the reason, the reasoning faculty. 
If the old creation was corrupted because Adam's noose was corrupted through pride, the new creation is brought to life through a reorientation of our minds, a reorientation of the noose towards kenosis, which is the extreme humility that Christ showed in the cross. Adam's sin was a sin of the mind, right? He grasped for equality with God. He fell for the ambition for divine power, which the serpent ignited inside him. And St. Paul says that the way out of this, of what Adam did, was for believers to transform the way they think, contemplating instead in their minds, specifically, he says that, and we're going to read it right now, on the extreme humility of Christ, which is a sharp contrast to Adam. So St. Paul in Philippians, in the Philippians, he sets up this contrast with Adam. So in Philippians 2, very famous Philippians hymn, let the following be in your mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. He who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be taken by force. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, right? So, who is in the form of God? Like in this, in, in this, in this verse, of course, we understand that Christ being in the form of God, we say, because, you know, he's second person of the Trinity, same one in essence with the Father. But if we take it at face value, we say Christ was in the form of God in the same way that Adam was also created in what? In the image and likeness of God. But the difference between what Christ did and what Adam did is that Adam reached to grasp, to become equal with God. But Christ actually does the opposite. What does he do? He empties himself and takes the form of servant and he obeys, right? The father says, this is, this is what you shall do. And Christ accepts versus the command that God gave Adam, right? But Adam did what he grasped for equality with God. Christ is equal with God. He is right. He's equal with the father, but he does what he comes to reverse and do the exact opposite of what Adam did. Okay, and now St. Paul is exhorting the believers to what? Keep this in your mind. Again, the reorientation of our intellectual faculty, of our understandings, of our whole way of looking at life. Prophecies also echo this because salvation then is not achieved through might and power. So again, today, the prophecies, there's a prophecy um, uh, from the reading of the prophecies from 1 Kings, um, where God uh, <laughs> tells Elijah, Elijah's complaining about he's the only one that believes in God and everybody else is out to get him and kill him. And, um, and God says, you know, then he replied, he being God, go out tomorrow and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold, the Lord will pass by and before the Lord, a great and powerful wind will be rending the mountains and shattering the rocks, but the Lord will not be in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord will not be in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there'll be a fire, but the Lord will not be in the fire. After the fire, there will be a sound of a gentle breeze and the Lord will be there. Salvation didn't come through 
you know, as Jewish people were expecting, which is that the Messiah will come in great exalted power and he will wage war against their enemies and restore the kingdom of God on earth by force. Right? They expected God to be in the earthquake and the fire and the wind that shatters the rocks of the mountain. But as God told Elijah, God will be in the what? The gentle breeze, in the act of extreme humility on the cross. And Christ himself has said this, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. So this call to transform the mind towards this attitude of humility as uh, imitation of Christ is echoed throughout the epistles of the, of the New Testament over and over. So in Colossians, it is written, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Again, set your mind, reorientation of the mind. In Ephesians, you were taught to put away the old self, which belongs to your former way of life since it becomes ever more corrupt after the lusts of deceit. Moreover, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self who is in the likeness of God. Again, we, it's the echoes of the Philippians hymn, the or, reorientation of the mind in the imitation of Christ puts us so that we are in the likeness of God once again who in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness. And of course, the fathers had a lot to say about this. So St. Gregory of Nyssa, he says, there is but one garment of salvation, namely Christ. Hence, the new man created in God's likeness is none other than Christ. One who has put on Christ has thus put on a new person created in God's likeness. And St. John Chrysostom says, when one is already clothed, how is it said that one must uh, further put on a new nature. New clothing was once put on in baptism. The new clothing now being put on is the new way of life and conduct that flows from baptism. There is uh, there, there one is no longer clothed by deceitful desires, but by God's own righteousness. So in baptism, we put on the crucified and buried Christ in his extreme humility. As St. Paul says in Galatians, for as many of you has, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what is common between this baptism by which we put on Christ and the flood? Water. Okay? New creation must be preceded with water that wipes away everything that is old. Origin says the old man includes all born as earthly men in their old nature. It is this old man, this ancient condition of humanity that is put off in Christ. Although his body continues, he nonetheless undergoes a change to a new life engendered by living baptism. What he has been put off, what he was has been put off. His old life is renewed by the holy water and the copious mercy of the anointing. He becomes a new rather than old, whole rather than corrupt, fresh rather than enfeebled, an infant rather than an old man, eternal rather than ephemeral. And when you contemplate on why the story of the flood today specifically, like why not tomorrow, why not yesterday, right? Like why not have the creation followed men and the flood followed by it immediately yesterday? Well, today's actually a very important day. Does anybody notice a change in what we say in, in church today? Yes. 
My Good Savior. We added My Good Savior. When does anybody know when we add My Good Savior? It's in a specific hour. It's not in the evening. Trick question. Very good. The 11th hour of the day. Why do we add My Good Savior in the 11th hour of today? Because again, everything in the church is extremely deliberate, right? Nothing is just happening by accident. We changed the Paschal Doxology and added My Good Savior in the 11th hour of Tuesday. Why? Because in the gospel of the 11th hour, Jesus declares to his disciples, finally, exactly how he's going to die. He had told them that he's about to go to Jerusalem and he'll be handed over into the hands of evil men. So they know all of that. But what they don't know, what he hadn't told them up to that point, is how precisely he's going to die. In the gospel of the 11th hour, 11th hour today, he declares it explicitly. He says, you know that in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The church is thus confirming to us this truth that the new creation symbolized by the wiping away of all that is old in the flood, about which we read in the morning prophecies, is achieved through this new mind, a mind that is completely submissive to the will of God, even to the point of a humiliating death on the cross. The old pride of Adam is wiped away by the waters of baptism, just as the waters of the flood wiped away evil in the world. And just as the new creation after the flood is inaugurated by Noah's sacrifice, after they come out of the ark, what do they do? They offer a sacrifice. The new creation in Christ is inaugurated by his own sacrifice, a sacrifice of extreme humility on the cross. And again, to another thing that we touched on last year that I'm going to recap, how do we bind ourselves to that sacrifice on the cross? Yes, we reorient our minds, but in the church, this binding ourselves to Christ is actually much more tangible. Well, let's read again from the morning prophecies from the book of Proverbs, where Sophia, or wisdom, who is Christ, speaks to us saying, whoever is foolish, again, not sound in the mind, let him turn to me. And to those lacking understanding, again, not sound in the mind, she said, come, eat of my bread and drink wine that I have mixed for you. Abandon folly that you may reign for eternity and seek insight and erect insight with knowledge. Okay? So this reorientation of the mind, and if we, because humanity is foolish, ultimately, like Adam was foolish, and all of us continue to be foolish daily, right? That wisdom speaks to us, and she says, eat. If you want to change the way of your understanding, if you want to be enlightened, if you don't want the folly anymore, bind yourself to me through what? Eating the bread and drinking the wine that I have mixed for you. Okay, so recapping. Salvation is not a financial transaction. Salvation is through new creation. The new creation begins by washing away our old ways of thinking and reorienting our minds, our noose, towards the obedience of God's commandments as Christ did by submitting to death on the cross. We then continue this transformation of our minds by binding ourselves to wisdom herself, literally through the mystery of the Eucharist, as Christ invited us to do in that reading from Proverbs. And as he perfected the newly created humanity, this new creation, by transforming our human nature in his resurrection, we shall be the recipients 
of this new transformed nature at the second coming. I'm going to end by reading from St. Paul, who summarizes all of this very nicely. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will be changed. For what is corruptible must put on incorruption, and what is mortal must put on immortality. But when the corruptible will have put on incorruption and the mortal immortality, then that which is written will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory?